we live here and we work here and we live and and, uh, work and die here and we have friends and family and all those things and God, of course, expects that and ordains that. But we are to keep the proper spiritual and biblical perspective. And it's difficult, especially when we're in the midst of struggles, in the midst of trials. Is it not so easy to get stuck in the weeds of life? There's that old saying that we often can't see the forest for the trees which means you can be in the middle of a huge, dense, beautiful forest, but all you see is the tree in front of you. You cannot truly appreciate the bigger picture of the forest in which you are standing. But yet in life, we are to always take a step back to gain the proper perspective on who we are and who God is. You know, somebody this morning told me, he said, Pastor Keith, I think the sun is trying to come out. And I said, the sun, what's that? We haven't seen that for a while, have we? It's, it's been a while. But here's the perspective. We can say, man, it's been so cloudy and rainy, and, and you know we haven't seen the sun in forever. But let's remember this, church. Every day, even when it's storming and pouring rain, the sun is still there. You just can't see it, Right? There are things that are blocking our view. But that's a lot like life. We know Jesus, the true Son, is there. He is always there. But we often allow things to cloud our perspective where we, where we sense we just can't see Him like perhaps we used to. The sun in the sky is still there, even if we can't see it through the cloud cover. The sun, Jesus Christ, is always with us even in the midst of trials, getting caught in the weeds, we can't sense his presence, right? His presence is always with us. He is there. And you know, one last thing about the sun, the Bible tells us that in the new heavens and the new earth, there'll be no need for the sun in the sky because the glory of God will be bright enough for all of eternity for us to see all we need to see. Can you imagine That is the beauty of the Lord Jesus. Also give us some eternal perspective. Well, you see up on the screen there a picture of a map. And it's kind of hard to see. It's a little small. But does that look familiar to you? That map is just outside those double doors in our lobby. It is the map around which we have the pictures and names and information for our missionaries that we support. It is our missionary map. But above the map is the word perspective. But what is a little different about that map that we have in our lobby? Many of you have noticed it. Maybe some of you have been coming here a long time and never even stopped to take a look. You notice something different about the map? Now it's upside down. Most people would say, well, Pastor Keith, it's upside down. I've noticed many a newcomer uh, after service just kind of like this, staring, saying, I know something's different, but I can't quite figure it out. And they're looking around like, can somebody explain this to me? But here's something else. We might say, well, it's upside down, but according to whose perspective? Who are we to say it's upside down? See, it's upside down according to what we are normally used to seeing in a map. It's all of the same countries and land masses. 
It's just given a different perspective. Why? I think it's so important. I put that up years ago as just a reminder, as a reminder for this morning, that we are called to see the world and to see people and to see ourselves from God's perspective, right? From a biblical worldview. And so we say, wow, this is kind of upside down. This is all out of proportion. But it's almost as if this is a, quote-unquote, God's eye view. It is the map of the world, yes, turned in a way, upside down. It's as if you are on top of the North Pole looking down, and then you are seeing the world God created. But of course, God sees the world as a globe from all perspectives, just as we should. But even more so, God is not bound by time or space, right? God is God and we are not. But yet we are to have the proper perspective on who he is and who we are. And so therefore, it's a great reminder that we should take a step back every once in a while from our daily lives and routines, whatever that looks like for you, to refresh your perspective, right? Refresh it. If you go to the eye doctor, they put that big thing in front of you, right? And they're trying to, to see what kind of lenses fit best for you. And it's just this big contraption machine. It's got all the different lenses. They keep clicking and which one is clear, which one is clear. They keep giving you a different perspective. It keeps refreshing. Is it this one? Is it this one? Is it this one? And this one. And after a while, you're like, Doc, they look all the same to me. And they get frustrated. I'm just trying to help you see. I'm just trying to help you see. But it's about giving you the proper perspective, right? We know when our eyes are, are, are getting worse and we, it's time for a new prescription, right? Then you get the new prescription. You say, wow, look at this, right? It's like a whole new world. Don't sing the song. It's a whole new world, right? But that's the idea that, that even in our daily lives, we don't want to get caught and stuck in the weeds. We want to have a proper perspective. And so here's what I'm going to do. It's been a long time since I've done this, but honestly, church, there are times, not too often, but there are times when just in the last minute, I sense the Lord telling me, you need to put aside what you've prepared and preach what I'm going to give you to preach. So last night at the 11th hour, um, I believe the Lord put that on my heart, but here's why I really needed it. And I don't think it's selfish, but you know, when I, when I share the Word of God, when I teach, when I preach, I'm the first one, I'm the first listener and learner and student because God is speaking to me, and, I, and, I, and just like he does to you, and I want to hear what he has to say, and he, he puts a burden on my heart and something he might reveal to me, and I want to share that with you. I needed a fresh perspective, and I trust the Lord will use today's message in your life as well. Wherever you may be in your relationship with God, in your, your following as a disciple of the Lord Jesus, I trust and I pray that what I'm about to talk about and share with you will be a blessing to you and help your perspective to be refreshed today. So what I'm going to do is two things. I'm going to read to you the story of the Bible. 
It'll be up on the screen, and the, the slides will follow exactly what I'm reading, so you can follow along or you can just listen. But this is the narrative of Scripture, the story of the Bible. And then the second thing I want to do for the remainder of our time together is I want to show you a very common way of organizing the flow and the unfolding of this story to help us keep perspective. Have you ever opened the Scriptures to do your devotional or to read or to study something and just quickly become overwhelmed and say, how can I ever understand what this is trying to say? When it's a huge book like this and all these pages and stories and people and how on earth am I ever supposed to figure out what God is saying? Dates and numbers and history and poetry and, and about Jesus and about the past, the present, the future, and all of that. How am I supposed to figure it out? This morning, I trust, will be a help to give you that perspective, that needed refreshing the perspective. So here is the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And then for the remainder of our time, I'll share a, a way of, of sort of unpacking how that unfolds and how it is sort of organized from God's divine perspective, all right? In the beginning was God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He had always existed, but now he spoke into being all that we know, first the angels, then the heavens, the earth, and all they contain. He then created man and woman in his own image, the first being Adam and Eve, and they lived in perfect harmony and innocence in a perfect place God had created for them, a garden called Eden. They would be his representatives over an earthly kingdom and have dominion over the creation. Uh, one of the angels God had created, perhaps the most magnificent of them all, had rebelled against God in pride, wanting to be greater than God and not his servant. And one day, this angel, Satan, tempted Adam and Eve to do just the same. And they did rebel against God by disobeying the one rule he had given them. In their sinful disobedience to the Creator, they became separated from Him, banished from the garden, and now subjected to decay and destruction and death, physically and spiritually. And so Satan, who wanted his own kingdom, had usurped authority over this world from Adam and Eve. But God did not give up on them. In the midst of pain and toil and hardship and death, there was also the promise of redemption, that one day the offspring of the woman would take back that authority, remove the penalty, power, and presence of sin, and once again there would be a representative of God on his earth to rule over the kingdom. So, what was once a time of innocence is now an age ruled by the conscience of humanity. Sin spreads in the world for the next 1,600 years and becomes so severe that in His righteous anger, God judges the world and sends a flood, destroying all living things, but mercifully saves a man named Noah and his family 
along with two of every kind of animal. In his sovereignty, God now institutes human government as the means to keep law and order. But sadly, things don't improve. And through Noah and his descendants, sin again takes root. After about 300 years, the people began to build for themselves a tower to reach into the sky and worship the creation rather than their creator. They were trying to prove their independence from God and build their own kingdom apart from him, even though he had commanded them to spread out over the earth and to multiply. Again, God judges, confusing their languages, thus forcing people to scatter and create many nations and cultures. His will be done. So a century later, God chooses one man named Abraham to leave his home and go to a new land that he would show him. God makes an unconditional covenant with Abraham, including a land for his people and a blessing for the whole world through his descendants, a promise that sets the stage for all the events in the rest of the story. It's a story of a promised king to establish a promised kingdom for God's people. We then learn of God's relationship with Abraham's son Isaac, his son Jacob, and then one of his sons, Joseph. And this is the rise of the Jewish people as a race. Through Joseph, the whole extended family of Jacob, now called Israel, about 70 or so, end up in Egypt. And all is well. But many years have passed and their story is forgotten. And the new Pharaoh sees the Jews, now over a million strong, as a threat. And he makes them slaves. We enter the book of Exodus. Enter Moses. He's born a Jew, but raised as a son of Pharaoh, banished to the wilderness for a treasonous act of murder, then called by God to go back and set his people free. And through the ten plagues and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the parting of the Red Sea, and the destruction of Pharaoh's army, they are free. God uses Moses to lead his people toward that promised land, which is to be the heart of the future kingdom. This begins a new chapter for the Hebrews. So God gives them a law, Ten Commandments, rules on holiness and worship, a conditional covenant this time, where obedience leads to blessings and disobedience to a curse. But again, in sin and rebellion, they follow false gods. Their disobedience and lack of trust in God lead them to wander in the desert for 40 years and keeps that generation, including Moses, from entering the promised land. But before he dies, and detailed laws, plans for the promised lands, and reminders for Israel to follow God, they're all recorded by Moses in the books we know as Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Joshua, the new leader, leads the Jews in conquering the land of Canaan and the promised land 
that was promised to them by God. Their relationship with God continues to be tenuous. Because of their sin, they fall into disobedience. They cry out to God for help. He provides them a leader, this time a a judge, to save and to provide. They're humbled and they're penitent for a time. And then the cycle begins again. Blessing and disobedience, then judgment, then repentance and mercy, and then blessing and disobedience again and again and again. So the people decide what they really need is a king, not not a judge. So God uses the last great judge, Samuel, to anoint for them a king named Saul. God wanted to be their king. They wanted their own. So, God then appoints a new king, a man after his own heart, named David, a young man, a giant killer, who rules the 12 tribes for about 40 years. Jerusalem is now considered the city of David. A line of Davidic kingship begins. The tabernacle moves to the temple in Jerusalem, the permanent place of worship. David's son Solomon builds that temple. And under his son Rehoboam, the nation becomes divided. And due to a series of bad kings and increased idol worship, both kingdoms eventually end up in exile. The north taken by Assyria, and the south in exile in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. Ezra through Malachi. God also sent prophets to his people before and after the exiles to call them back to repentance and back to him. A remnant returns to Jerusalem. They begin to rebuild It had been almost a thousand years since that exodus out of Egypt. A lot has happened to this people of God, but once again, Israel has a national identity. But then, for the next 400 years, silence. See, between the Old and the New Testament, there's no word from God. The Jewish people are under rule of various empires. The Assyrians gave way to the Babylonians, and then the Persians took over, then the Greeks, and then eventually the Romans. We enter the New Testament, the Gospels, and our epistles. Jesus the Messiah, the promised descendant of Abraham and David, to fulfill God's plan to redeem the world and restore the kingdom and all of creation, he is born under this Roman rule. Born of a virgin, he grew to preach repentance and the arrival of the king for his kingdom. It's the good news of hope and, and forgiveness and deliverance for his people. Although Israel rejects their Messiah, and are now under his discipline, Jesus was obedient to the Father and accomplished what he was ultimately sent to do, make salvation from sin available to all. 
He is crucified under Pontius Pilate, buried, and on the third day rose back to life in body and spirit, resurrected to defeat death and deliver the hope of eternal life. He appeared to his apostles and then to 500 more. And after 40 days, he ascended to heaven. He established his church, giving the Holy Spirit to empower and guide to continue his mission on earth until he returns for his church. There is no longer the age of law, but now the age of grace. So the church grows. Among the Jews and then the Gentiles, in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the known earth. Now we are the church, and we follow Christ's example by living and sharing the gospel, the good news of forgiveness of sins by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are called to be salt and light to a lost and hurting world, remaining obedient and trusting in the Lord until he returns. In the final book of the Bible, Revelation. But this story, God's story, is far from over. It has been almost 2,000 years since Christ's death and resurrection. But in the near future, when Christ does return for his bride, the church, we are removed from the earth to be with him. God will then finish his discipline of Israel and finalize his judgment of the unbelieving world during those seven years of tribulation when the one known as the Antichrist assumes power. And at the end of that tribulation, the Antichrist will launch a final attack on Jerusalem, culminating in the battle of Armageddon. Jesus Christ will return to the earth, his second advent, destroy the Antichrist and his armies, and cast them into the lake of fire. The king has returned to take his rightful place over the kingdom his father had promised. All believers in Jesus enter that kingdom, and all Israel at that time will be saved and finally acknowledge Christ as their king. Christ will then bind Satan for a thousand years, and he will rule his earthly kingdom from the throne of David in Jerusalem for a millennium. And, he will, and we will be right there with him. We say hallelujah to that. Amen. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released, attempt one last attack, be defeated again, and then cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Christ will then deliver that kingdom to the Father and usher in a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem, the eternal dwelling place of all believers. Never again will there be any sin or sorrow or death. That is the end of the Bible story, but certainly the beginning of all eternity. Amen. We praise God. We can open the pages of Scripture and be confused and even get lost in the weeds. Every word of the Scripture is important. But church, it is so crucial that we 